Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. I'm Tay. Big chillin' today. How you doing, Tim? New year? New start? Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you doing, Tay? I'm pretty good. No complaints. I'm up at my uh, beautiful cottage right now, and it's always my favorite place to watch this movie, so... It's uh, It was fitting to pick this one for this time of year. Yeah, I wanted to maybe kick off with that. We're talking about The Big Chill, and when we were looking at a movie to do in January, uh, I think this was one of the first ones you suggested, and also a mutual friend of ours also told me that she liked to watch this around the new year. Uh, why does this connect with you there? Because it's not when the movie takes place. Uh, my my dad used to my dad's not a movie guy by any means but he has this tradition where it was kind of like i'm picking a movie and everybody has to watch whatever i pick yeah. uh this happened to be a few years ago i got the big chill on criterion for christmas time and my dad picked out the big chill for us all to watch on new year's day morning you know a really hungover mm-hmm. low-key morning around the cottage here mm-hmm. and uh it kind of just hit the right way i think everybody who was kind of half paying attention slowly started turning their heads more towards the screen and this movie just kind of engrosses you in and kind of welcomes you in with this group of friends that are depicted in the film and i thought that that kind of just carries this this kind of familial kind of this vibe of gathering together and celebrating even Mm -hmm. though it's kind of not that (laughs) I think you're right. There is a sneaky engagement to this movie in that there's nothing huge that happens. I think maybe the peak of action is either like a like a football scrum during during a halftime or or when Tom Berenger fails to jump into a convertible. Yeah. Um, but like otherwise, it, it's it's dialogue driven. Yeah. There's it's dialogue driven. There's six or seven protagonists. There there are no set pieces. There there isn't even. I would say arguably like a big, huge, like a uh, palpable resolution or, or, or distinct arc or change. Uh, there it, it's yeah. a, it's a singular movie. I'd say it, it, it does something very difficult and it does it very gracefully, which, uh, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into. Well, yeah, there aren't too many characters that fulfill a full arc in this film, like th- mm. from beginning to end. I can only think of maybe one character, but mm-hmm. Uh, Was this your first time seeing this film? So, yeah, when you suggested it, uh, you passed off the Criterion copy to me and I watched it. I had never seen it before. And I think I had said to you that, like, in my mind, the big chill was that Owen Wilson, Morgan Freeman movie, which is the big something (laughs) else, right? The big bounce. bounce, Yeah. So in in my mind, every time I heard the big chill, I saw that DVD cover from, like, the video store when I was a kid where it's like four people in a line it's Owen Wilson and Morgan Freeman some woman in a bikini and, 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 and somebody Sheen. else in Charlie Sheen on on the beach so when you suggested the big chill I was like I guess I overlooked that movie I think I'm gonna pass two hundred thousand dollars that's insulting do you think I'm that easy uh-huh yeah maybe I am yeah no so I hadn't seen this movie before and I do think another reason it works really well at this time of year is that the movie is highly reflective right it's a lot of people sort of considering their lives and where they are and where they thought they would be Um, for being a movie that doesn't take place at New Year's you can there are definitely a few of the characters have resolutions by the end of it they have 
either recommitted to something or they have moved on to what they think is the right thing for themselves. So I think it really fits in for this time of year. I very much agree. And when we came to choosing a New Year's film to talk about, all the movies that come to mind are these like stupid holiday films or like there's that actual really on the nose one that's called New Year's Eve, I believe. Mm-hmm. Which is Gary just one Marshall of those, flick. Yeah, one of those ensemble Gary Marshall flicks, which are the bane of theater's existence in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of like those are, those are box office killers. That that are specifically targeted for times of certain times of the year, and they just are quick cash grabs. Nothing mm-hmm. for us to really discuss and dive into. Unlike the Big Chill, which has arguably a ton of context that we could dive really deep into, or we could treat it like the way the movie treats itself and kind of keep everything at surface level and kind of allow the audience to determine what they think of the film. Yeah, and I mean, as as is our, our standard operating procedure, we are going to get into the weeds, but just really about one scene. But before um, we do, maybe we should just talk about the movie in case anyone hasn't seen it, like I hadn't uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, the Big Chill was released on September 28, 1983. It's about a once-close group of college friends that reunite over the course of a weekend to mourn their departed friend, reflecting on how they and the world have changed since they were last together. Uh, it was directed by Lawrence Kasdan and stars Tom Berenger, Glenn Close, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt, Kevin Kline, Mary Kay Place, Meg Tilly, and Joe Beth Williams. So, as you can tell just from that list of cast members, this movie is loaded with pretty high-level talent. And I wouldn't go as far mm-hmm. to say all A-listers, but all of these actors were kind of pretty significant, or at least on the rise at the time of this film. Obviously, Lawrence Kasdan, the director and writer of this film, was probably one of the most sought-after writers in Hollywood at this time, coming mm-hmm. off of Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. And he and, had and, just and, done and, his directorial debut, yeah. right? Bo- uh, Body Heat, which, Body did, Heat. which did really well, and that's where he would have known William Hurt from. That's one thing right. that I did want to mention was, in some of the research, it's easy to look back now and see these guys as A-list stars, but uh, uh, more than one article I'd looked at it had said that this was a sort of a big casting achievement, in that no, none of them were really established yet. And I took a look at their IMDb's and really like the breakout roles that I think you'd associate with most of them um, haven't happened yet. Like this is William Hurt before Broadcast News and before Kiss of the Spider Woman. This is Jeff Goldblum before uh, The Fly, which I think would have been his breakout role really as a star. He had been in a ton of stuff before that. He had been in like uh, Death Wish, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He has an okay sized role in the remake. Um, and I mean, same with Behringer and Glenn Close, who I'd say, and, and Kevin Klein. like the five of them, I'd say are like the big lasting stars from this, Correct. but they were definitely captured on their way up. And Glenn Close got the, got the Oscar nom, which is odd for an ensemble movie like this, but it, I'd say if anyone, this was her breakout role, but within the next three or four years, all of them have their big roles that made them the stars that are still active today or still remembered to this day in the case of i'd say kevin klein isn't he's on bob's burgers a lot now but he i don't feel like he's done a big movie since like wild wild west i feel like he kind of hit it big early in his career and is kind of mm-hmm. just kind of more Fish called wanda dave yeah i always seem to find him magnetizing in films though i mm-hmm. i there's something about his charisma that's just overwhelming and he's such a likable character in everything he's very charming he's very casual everything I think of. Yeah. yeah uh almost relatable but then like in a movie like this and this is something i'm going to discuss about pretty much every character there's like familiarity 
there's comfort, but some of their actions are just, I don't, I don't even know how to begin rationalizing them. You mean like what they do to each other? Yeah. And like, and so what they for, say to each other for Harold's character, which is the Kevin Klein character, he has this stupid look on his face when he, for the second time breaks the law in telling, uh, Nick William Hurt's character about his company going public. And yeah. he has this like stupid childish smirk on his face. And he's such a rational, smart, forward thinking character throughout the film. And then he like, <coughs> just, he has this moment of where he like clearly is like reverting to some childhood excitement. Um, and yeah. this isn't to like chastise this character. I'm just saying they all have a moment that kind of sets them back or makes them seem more childish or more, repu- mm-hmm. more socially repugnant in some way. Yeah, I do think like this is a big time locked in, dialed in uh, baby boomer movie, right? These are people who were hippies when they were in college. And then they, they, this movie's a lot about recognizing that you couldn't be that anymore. There's so many conversations in this movie about how they, they hated money, they hated property, they hated success. And you start this movie with all of them having sold out in one way or another. Uh, this inevitability of the 60s not being able to last and your ideals not lasting regardless of when you went to college or when you were in university, right? So I like that there are these points of where they revert back, like you say, right? Like there's an anti-establishment kind of bend inclined for trying to help his friends at the risk of, um, you know, SEC fines and penalties and things like that. And there are these degrees of them having grown up properly, right? Like whether it's Behringer becoming a big TV star or Goldblum calling himself a journalist over and over, even though he writes entertainment puff pieces. But Um, even he like undercuts himself. Like they, they all seem aware of their shortcomings, Mm -hmm. but are willing to accept them. And a lot of it is like exactly what you just mentioned. It's this, the influence of the (laughs) baby boomer era where yeah. there's all this resentment because they could never be what they wanted to be growing up, which was yeah. basically just a bunch of revolutionaries who said, F the system. Yeah. Your revolution is over, Mr. Lebowski. Condolences. The bomb's lost. And I mean, I love that Meg's character, you know, she wanted to be a lawyer. She wanted to fight for the for the underrepresented. And at yeah. this point, she's jaded about representing these people who she knows has done have done horrible things and she she refers to them with really kind of gross language right it's the way that the the shine comes off of things in college like this movie is for being rooted around a death this movie is not about death i don't think just like funerals are not about the dead they're about the people who are left over this movie is about aging right um and and it's the single point in time where you touch in with these people and you get to live with them for this weekend and learn so much about them as they all sort of either recommit to what they're doing or find the next thing that they're going to do. And I like that the movie, I think it walks a fine line between saying these people have not all solved their problems by taking this next step. We're just checking in with them. If we did this another five years, they might all be in the same sort of place of ennui or unfulfillment they're lacking any kind of assuredness in, in what they've decided to do with their lives. I think that might still be the case 10 years later if they were going to have another big chill. And maybe that's part of the comfort level of watching something like this, even as a younger mm-hmm. person, like younger than the characters depicted in the film, because mm-hmm. you understand that adulthood, even though you can have all these grand illusions of what it could be, 
is still like significantly flawed and you still never are figuring yourself out 100%. You still have all these setbacks that or regrets or resentments about what you believed or like in contrast to what you believed as a child or like as an adult, mm-hmm. young adult. Uh, there, yeah, there's, there's a, a real lot. acceptance. Yeah, yeah. And relatability is a thing too. Mm-hmm. I do think this movie is comfortable for that reason, right? There's this social aspect. You get to hang out with these people. And I'd say so long as you're post-university college age, I think there is there's something, there's a bit of a balm in this movie for wherever you're at in your life. It's Kasdan's kind of saying, like, we never all realize our dreams that we had when we were 21, and, and we probably never will, and that's a good thing in some cases, and it's a thing that you can be sad about in other cases, but you are where you are, right? Yeah, and these characters come together and almost accept each other for who they once were and who they are now, but there's still... I still don't think every issue that they mention and that's brought up is resolved. I think that they just yeah. learn to live with each other the way they are mm-hmm. and then depart and go their own separate ways after this weekend. It's why I think it's kind of refreshing that, say, the Joe Beth Williams and uh, Tom Berenger relationship doesn't actually go carry on p- beyond this weekend, mm-hmm. or at least seemingly so. Whereas the fairy tale ending would be she divorces her husband. And they move in together in Hollywood, but it's the movie isn't that kind of Hollywood ending. Yeah, it's not super clean. I think you're right. There are a couple threads where Kasdan and and sorry, he had a co-writer, Barbara, uh, Barbara Benedek, who is apparently the wife of his lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so Kasdan and Benedek, I think, take the realistic route of saying in in some of those cases, like where Nick and Tom Berenger's character have an argument the next morning they just kind of like brush it off it doesn't mean that they found a common ground or anything like that i think it's the thing that you sometimes have with close friends of yours or long-term friends of yours where you you have an argument about something maybe even say something that's hurtful but if you give it 24 hours and neither of you want to delve any deeper into it you're both just going to smile and shrug it off yeah and i guess those are the relatable elements of this kind of movie Mm -hmm. where the characters are not Hollywoodized in any way, even though uh, like watching some of the behind the scenes stuff and listening to some interviews with some people who were producing this film. This was a Hollywood mm-hmm. film. This was a studio budgeted film, mostly large in part because Lawrence Kasdan was who he was at this moment. And this is something he yeah. wanted to make. So obviously a studio was going to help him with it. But it wasn't easy to sell this or pitch this to studios, according to Kasdan. He kind of describes what the process was like as saying, look, seven protagonists can work, and yes, this can be a comedy, even though it's about people coming together after a funeral, both the lack of a solo protagonist and a consistent genre tone throughout the film were difficult sells. Yeah, I mean, you're at the height, or not at the height, but you're really in the the full swing of the blockbuster era, right? Like... It was just in the past decade where you had things start to come out that were just destroying records and, and franchises were taking off. And Kasdan yeah. had a direct hand in two of these big money-making franchises. Then he did Body Heat, which really feels like you're allowed to kind of like you make a ton of money and then they let you do your thing. So he got to direct it. He got to cast who he wanted. He had William Hurt super early in his career. And then you would expect Kasdan to say, okay, I'll make another money maker." And then he goes, no, I want a dialogue-driven six main character 
story about people coming together after a suicide, um, I'm not surprised that it was difficult to sell. Um, right? Like in the same year in 83, you've got Return of the Jedi, um, Tootsie, Flashdance. They're all making, it le- like, I mean, $250 million for Return of the Jedi, just under $100 million for Flashdance, right? Like wow. Kasdan, in yeah. terms of value to studios, I bet they didn't like this coming in. Because they knew even if it was a super successful movie, even if it got a ton of Oscars, it's not going to make as much money as Kasdan could if he was working for a franchise. Correct. And maybe it was just turning to direction and he wanted to take his chance at directing Mm -hmm. and saw this as like, okay, well, I got to keep the steam going from body heat into Mm -hmm. the big chill. Uh, Just for the record, William Hurt was in Altered States before this, which is a pretty cool movie. Right. That's oh yeah, that's earlier than I than I thought. But it's just a year. It's a year before. But yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a that's a great movie. So the other thing I did want to talk about, I think that's very impressive in this movie from Kasdan and Benedict, is the way that exposition is treated. Um, I do think if you if you're looking at this movie as a whole and how it relates to the audience, I'd say your goal, your challenge, is that you need the audience to get to know these people that already know each other really well. Or at least they think they do. They have a familiarity that the audience cannot just break into right away. These people all have a history. They all have their own little dynamics, right? So there's six of them. Um, uh, was it 36 possible combinations? Hey, cut out my math. I don't. I don't think. I don't, I don't know no, I'm keeping your math in. Oh no. Uh, there are a number of combinations at play there, and. The audience has no graceful way into this, I think, in a normal setup, except for having an audience surrogate. And what I love is that Chloe, who is the one person who's not one of their old college friends, she's uh, uh, the departed uh, Alex's girlfriend, could so easily be treated as a surrogate. She could be asking them questions about their college days and asking them what they do and things like that. And there is that passing question that we'll talk about in our scene where she thinks Jeff Goldblum is a, is a chauffeur because he he mentions being in limos all the time but otherwise she asks maybe two or three questions in the entire movie and they're not really deep and they none of them lead to a ton of exposition every bit of info you learn about these characters is i think very gracefully brought out through those small combinations of of duos in in cars and in one room of the house either like bringing up old days from college or talking about where they're at now and what they've been up to well, one of my favorite lines in the film is actually from her when she says, I don't, I don't like talking about my past as much as you guys do. Which is really yeah. meta. It's really on the yeah. nose. But it also allows you to assume she's from a different generation than the rest of them. She appears a bit younger, mm. uh, yep. was with Alex, who they kind of allude to as being kind of a bit of unstable. a rebel still, a bit unstable. Yeah. But she does not fit into the role of the audience member kind of being brought in the group, but she does represent a different perspective than the rest of the group. And it's pretty jarring when her opinions are brought in in contrast to the main group of people. Yeah, no, she's got a completely different energy. She's very odd compared to them. And I think part of that is you get this palpable sort of um, juxtaposition between how they all feel about each other and the role that she is in here when she doesn't know all these things that they all know it about each other and like who used to be trying to sleep with who and who has unrequited love and whose career has failed or 
you know, William Hurt's character was in Nam, but the rest of them weren't and, and, and all these things. So I think she, she carries this odd sort of lack of familiarity with the rest of the group. And also she just is odd in general. Like for someone who's so unfamiliar, she's not asking any questions. She's not trying to get to know her dead boyfriend's friends any better than they just sort of let out naturally as as she gets to know them just by watching them interact with one another, not by, um, you know, interviewing them. Which I think is, it's Kazan and Benedict not taking the easy way out, which would be to have her basically be our surrogate and ask all these questions. But they Mm -hmm. really allow like the, the core cast where I'm going to refer to them as basically everybody excluding her. Um, Mm -hmm. The core cast kind of love to talk about themselves, love to talk about their past. And I think the way that they're introduced is pretty brilliant because we, the first things that the first like character clues that we're introduced to are things that represent more of their past than their present selves mm-hmm. because it's them coming together and seeing each other for the first time and you're getting like these like small bits of their character but it's really like yeah. it's the parts of their past selves that have endured that you're introduced to first so you see a bit more of who they were in the past when mm-hmm. they actually knew each other as this core group of friends and then yeah. as they get to know each other and start talking to one another you see where they have kind of uh, gone in different directions on the same path mm-hmm. well yeah and that's i think the genius in this script is that kasdan and benedict know that they can rely on the premise to fuel exposition and not have to put a tool in like an audience surrogate so they know that just like you know when you go see your old college friends or this like this pocket of friends that are separate from your current life you you either end up like you all update each other on where you're at and what you're doing, who you're dating, what your job is like, etc. Your your latest enterprise if you need. I mean, I feel like it's more of a boomer thing to show up and be like, I'm starting a club. I need investors. I'll ask my friends. But then also you do that and then you relive the past. You tell the same stories over and over and things like that. So both of those are natural ways to get at this exposition. Um, so I think it's a very powerful premise for that reason. And just shows some intelligence in the screenwriting process to this film. Like, obviously, this was a project that Kazan really felt passionate about writing. He came to a studio with this idea of a bunch of friends gathering and tried Mm -hmm. to pitch it as like a Hollywood script. So he clearly had some personal stakes in writing something like this. And it's nice that he didn't go, you know, it's not like a super self-serving film or at least it doesn't come off that way it comes off as like a genuine experience between a bunch of different friends even though i think it is pretty clear that kazan is represented by kevin klein's character harold yeah i don't i yeah i don't think i think you're right this isn't a self-serving movie i don't see it as a vehicle for any anyone involved maybe the screenwriters but again Kasdan doesn't need a vehicle. He's his his bona fides have been established, so there is no star making role in this. I don't think. Like again, Glenn Close got the Oscar nom, and she said it was because she's like she's like it's basically just because I had that crying shower scene. Hollywood likes me when I'm naked or dead, and I, honestly, I think she's that, right. like, that's, that's totally it. That's one of the heavier scenes, and she's also like she she's naked in it, which you know Hollywood loved at that time, especially he's a little bit more transgressive. And then also they give her one more other shot where she's on the porch during the uh, football game talking to Karen, and you get a slow zoom while she's sort of talking about her infidelity. Um, 
And I'd say those are two of the sort of heavier moments in the in the uh, in the script and in the movie that really like focus it on one actor, where so much of the rest of it are these small ensembles or full ensemble things working really well. Yeah, uh, William Hurt's character Nick gets a couple of those moments, but not for as long, and they're not as hard hitting. I guess they're more just observations of his character, which I think is just because he's more of a lone wolf type character anyway. So I think having mm-hmm. scenes of him doing things on his own, like when he's doing some cocaine up in his room, yeah. uh, you know, I think those are just because Nick is a very solitary individual. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think yeah, the way they does... shot everybody was pretty accurate to the, to depict their characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of character development and storytelling that takes place without dialogue for how much dialogue is in this movie. Right, I think you have some very interesting ways that it's shot, and and a lot of things that just happens visually, um, which is something I do want to talk about when we get to our scene summary. But I'm not sure we're we're there yet. Uh, well, I did want to before we dive into the scene. I did want to mention yeah. probably the biggest, most significant takeaway from this entire film, which is the soundtrack, uh, oh, and also yeah, I mean that's <laughs> also kind of a big reason why we chose this film, and it's our yeah. theme for the month of January: needle drop films. Yeah. Yeah. This movie, uh, again, um, the, the two things I knew about the big chill was number one, I thought it was the big bounce. How does that turtleneck thing work? Does it keep your head on? And number two, I knew it had a famous soundtrack. It was, it was a very big deal. It's a, one of the most trafficked, like sort of vinyl, um, OSTs that are out there. Um, it, it features a lot of like Motown and more classic stuff, stuff directly from their college days which is, I think, a great way to uh, keep establishing that these people are in part stuck in their past, right? They're still yeah. thinking about their glory days. They're still thinking about when music was like this. Kevin Klein, a stand-in for Kazdin, is so insistent that music isn't like this anymore, right? And, I mean, I, I had looked up, if you say, like, when this movie was in production, the top 100 singles of 1982, you got number one is uh, Physical for Olivia Newton-John, Eye of the Tiger... Uh, Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll, Ebony and Ivory. So like more progressive disco movement. Yeah, like post-disco and like more electronic mm-hmm. and some social commentary. Like you can't see this movie having that kind of soundtrack. Like if they're just trying to get like the hottest stuff at the moment and put it in, um, it, it it really wouldn't work the same. Yeah, and it's not like any, a lot of these like nostalgic movies that are literally just cramming in the top pop songs from these eras that they are nostalgically referring to. This is mm-hmm. much more nuanced. This is much more uh, attached to the actual filmmaking, attached to the characters, and most importantly, attached to the script. Uh, yeah. About two-thirds of this soundtrack were actually written into the script initially by Kasdan and Benedict, so mm-hmm. it is worth noting that this wasn't just like a studio cramming in the most popular music of from a decade mm-hmm. earlier, I guess. Yeah. This is actually narratively driven and you're and what we talked about earlier about this being a a big group of baby boomers gathering together. This was their music when they were in college and this is the music from when they were together in the past. Uh mm-hmm. and and yes, uh Harold's character is kind of stuck in this way, but then we do have a bit of contrast there like Michael played by Jeff Goldblum says there's been a lot of great music in the past decade and mm-hmm. kind of in, kind of going hand in hand with his like desire to own a club, being hip, yeah. staying on top of trends and being this 
writer for a man or what was the journal he writes for uh it was like an is an entertainment magazine yeah. like um people or something like yeah that, i right? think you're right it's like more of like a social trendy kind of magazine and I, that just mm-hmm. fit his character that he would be the one to actually contest he's the only one who contests the music choices put on by harold yeah the rest of them really they're all they're all still in it just like again if you're 30 if you're 40 if you're 50 and someone throws on the music that you listen to in university at a certain point you're it's still going to bring you right back you're right like this soundtrack directly plays into the characterization um sometimes really directly when they're talking right about the music they're talking about when they saw ccr they're talking about how this is the this is the only good music anymore but also like it directly ties into some of the storytelling right like the very first scene as i heard it through the grapevine plays as they each find out that their friend alex had died um you know so they're they're getting that news some of them are more direct like that some of them are more indirect there's i mean arguably laughable use of uh like when a man loves a woman things like that like it, that it's on the nose but it's yeah yeah right um i i think kazan's too smart to have done that sincerely um so i'm fine reading into it and, and giving him a little bit more credit um, but yeah, music is super important, and and that is our our theme for this month are these needle drop movies. So we will have already, or will be doing an audience vote on four movies that are feature really strong soundtracks, feature soundtracks that influence the movie that the movie depends on for storytelling, that kind of thing. Yeah, and this movie is one of the first examples I've ever seen of such distinct needle drops. Literally, every mm-hmm. all the sound drops out for some for some of the songs. All of it drops out just for the music. Um, The scene we're going to talk about today, though, which may may as well transition here, um, actually features a song by the Rolling Stones, You Can't Always Get What You Want. And it's one of the few needle drop moments where there's actually still music, but or where there's actually still narrative audio playing with the music. So, Mm -hmm. And it's like one of the few examples where they're combined. So I'll just get into the scene summary. Our scene today takes place from 1335 to 1945 into the film. Kind of surprising because it feels like the opening scene of the movie in many ways, but uh, for those loyal listeners out there, we don't do opening scenes on the Single Serving Cinema Mm -hmm. podcast, so we are cheating and doing the second scene of the film, which is almost like a second introduction to the characters. Um, In this scene, the central cast of characters depart from Alex's funeral, and Karen begins playing You Can't Always Get What You Want on the organ, transitioning to a needle drop moment in the film as a series of character interactions occur throughout the motorcade. Yeah, I think uh, this is a great scene to do. As you said, like our rule is always we don't do opening scenes. So this allows us to sort of cheat because it is, I'd say, an introductory scene, but it is not the very first scene in the movie. Um, but that doesn't, I don't want to undercut the actual first scene or first two scenes that take place before it, or scene and a half, whatever you want to call it, in that there's a lot of non like there's no dialogue up until, I'd say, around here. There's a little tiny bit. But all the characterization is done visually as these people both find out that their friend had died and then uh, show up for this funeral. They're either they're getting ready and then they're, they're, they're getting there. And I love how you get this breakdown between how people act in the church, how you would act in a funeral service, and how and how you act as soon as you're outside of that. The the difference, the sort of gallows humor that we're all we all sort of lean towards. You get some really funny lines between the characters once they're in the privacy of their own 
cars in the procession that these kind of things that you'd never say during a funeral service you'd never say in the church i think it's a very realistic thing right and it really kind of brings you back to earth for a second and says oh yes these were these were very all these characters were very close to this victim they are making jokes about uh like pretty dark jokes about the suicide already right after the funeral and it really just kind of puts Mm -hmm. you in that mindset oh this group of people were very close they are comfortable making these jokes so soon after a funeral and i don't know it kind of put me in the mindset of like i understand where all these characters are at and it's this weird it's this weird stasis when you experience someone close to you dying that you don't know what is you you don't have as great of a measure for what's appropriate behavior yeah, And you can slip and say stupid things or say mean things or rude things, but also you can be super susceptible to hearing these things. And I, I thought the mm-hmm. movie did a really good job at kind of stirring this all into a big mixing bowl in this scene and kind of giving you a good taste of all these different ways of how people are handling someone's death because it doesn't necessarily translate to who they are later in the film, only in part. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it this this sequence really recognizes that there are no, there's no rules. There are no, there's no proper etiquette. There's no best practices for how you mourn a person. Everyone's going to do it a little bit differently. And you do get to see how comfortable these people are with one another for how dark some of the jokes they are that they're making. But I mean, just in the last couple months, I've been in either funeral situations or situations adjacent to funerals. And it, it's, it's a hundred percent accurate that, everyone has a different take about what's appropriate and whether or not a joke could maybe make people feel better or undercut some of the tension or help with the mourning process there you're going to keep sort of fumbling and maybe saying the wrong thing but these are these um less than graceful ways that people mourn and i think it's very well realized here and i think it's i think it's hilarious when um yeah, it's Nick and Meg in the car. It's one of the earlier sort of interactions you get in this sequence. And Meg says that the last thing that she said to Alex was they had had an argument. She had said he was wasting his life, which is funny in and of itself. And uh, William Hurt, Nick, says that's probably why he killed himself, which is uh, hilarious. And the line delivery is picture perfect. And it's maybe the second thing that you hear William Hurt's character say. I love it so much. Last time I spoke with Alex, we had a fight. I yelled at him. That's probably why I killed him, so. Yeah, and it, it does that great cut back to the song right after each of these moments, each of these lines. When when Nick says the line, like, that's probably why he killed himself, it cuts right back to the score, and then it cuts mm. back into the car. Yeah, and, and then it cuts back in, and she's like, "I told him he was wasting his life," and it cuts out again. And you do kind of have this, and I, I love that. Like, this is not the only time in this movie. I love any filmmaker that will give time for processes. So, any sort of environment building, I love when these these cars are getting lined up, and you see each of the headlights come on. They each get their own little insert. It's great. Um, it's so and, simple, and just like yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just something that I, I, don't, I don't even. I don't even know if I have anything of consequence to say about those shots. I just love that they're included. It just it puts you a little bit more into the scene, into the idea of all these cars in a row, where they have to go. It takes its time. Yeah, I thought that the editing is, in the scene we're discussing today at least, and probably the rest of the movie this applies to, is very generic editing. But it works because 
it's so consistently generic and it's giving you nothing that nothing that is drawing your attention away from the film all the editing is meant to keep you immersed with what is happening whether it's with the music or with the characters and in this scene it's a mixture of both which i thought is was really effectively edited because a needle drop scene doesn't always flow narratively it's can they can mm-hmm. sometimes operate like a music video and you yeah. i don't think that would have worked as well if i had even kind of slipped into that mindset while watching this scene specifically because there's so much emotion going on here and you mm-hmm. you don't know the characters well enough to know that a lot of this is supposed to be humorous uh yeah coming back to this idea of like studios questioning whether this is a comedy or not i think when you start reading the scene you're like oh that's dark oh that's dark Ooh, dark mm-hmm. dark humor now okay yeah. <laughs> so what are we even watching here we're watching a bunch of kind of asshole characters to comment on their friend's death and mm-hmm. it doesn't end up being that way but i could see how people's first impressions when you're watching these this first 20 minutes of the movie kind of feel that way yeah and i mean something that you mentioned there that i i do want to talk about is that something we've talked about so many times in this podcast is that any sort of point in your story is an opportunity to tell people more about characters. So there are always these missed opportunities like this, where it could just be, you know, you have the song start on organ, it fades into the real song, and then you have no dialogue. You just do the funeral procession. You have the shots of the water there in South Carolina. You got that great sort of shot of the, the raised road that goes over the water. And you're right. It could have just been a music video. But instead, Kazan and Benedict knew this is a great time to teach you about these characters because the the moment you're out of a funeral, the moment you're out of a wedding, your moment you're out of a ceremonial service is when you're going to really get to know who you are and who people are. What was on their minds? What is the joke that they were waiting to tell? Who was the person that they wanted to see right after the ceremony? Right. That's all this big... is really, Im- yeah, all this is really important stuff. And it ties right into, uh, I mean, Tony Joe's Every Frame of Painting. He's got that great video that I think we've already linked to a different one about how to do comedy. And he compares a bunch of Apatow movies where when it's like the character's going to New York City, take some B-roll of like the bridges in New York City and Manhattan and set it to a pop song as compared to uh, Hot Fuzz and Edgar Wright using this little quick cut sequence of him going out into the country to show you that there's no reception, that it's getting darker, that time is passing, that the trains are becoming less advanced. Just like this, this process of moving the body from the church to the burial plot is not about burying the body, and it's not about just showing you this nice sequence set to an appropriate song. It's giving all these characters time to tell you about themselves. So let's dive into some of these character interactions that occur on this drive to the funeral plot. Uh, Nick and Meg are in a car together. So Nick, we've already seen mm-hmm. him pop a few pills, uh, kind of scatter them across his seat, his passenger seat, before the funeral even starts. So we already mm-hmm. assume that he is the delinquent, uh, still drug-using member of the friend group. Uh, Meg joins yeah. him for the car ride. Um, Sam, Michael, and Chloe. So that's uh, Tom Berenger's character, Jeff Goldblum's character, and uh, Meg Tilly's character. Mm-hmm. all in a car together and chloe doesn't know either the other or the two men in the car um and then in yeah. the third car we have richard played by don galloway who we haven't mentioned yet who is the husband to karen uh so these three separate car rides all give us great insight into 
I don't know, each of these, what we can expect from each of these characters moving forward. Mm-hmm. Let's start with Nick and Meg. We already kind of mentioned the gallows humor. Mm-hmm. What else can we gather from these two's interaction early in this movie? I mean, early in the movie, I think even before they get in the car, you have a lot of sort of physical contact and warmth uh, directly from Meg to Nick. And also, like, it's reciprocated to an extent. You can tell, like, he is, he's medicated and he's more distant, but she's really got a thing for him. Uh, There's a, a sequence prior to them getting in the cars where it's Nick and Meg and Sam, and Meg makes some comment about asking Nick to marry her. I no longer know how to handle myself stone. You don't have to handle yourself with us. Will you marry me? <laughs> Both of you. Very sort of friendly kind of stuff like that. But also, and I mean, um, Nick also gives her a joint in the car and she gets so high that she walks in the wrong direction at the end of the procession. She starts walking towards an open field instead of towards the burial plot. It's very funny. Uh, which is a funny, a funny little tag. Um, but other than that, I think their interactions are more general sort of like audience flavor for the idea that, yeah, we're going to make some darker jokes, get to know how these people feel about this thing. They're not entirely reverent of what's going on. Uh, and they're that familiar with one another. Meg doesn't really, it takes another hour for Meg's sort of goal in this movie to become clear, I'd say. Yeah, I don't think, I'm not suggesting that we get much of their uh, much of a sense of their greater goals for the film but i do Mm -hmm. think that setting these two characters up as one reaction to how to respond to a funeral and to a death Mm -hmm. i think it's like just one way that characters can deal with this grief which is like you said to self-medicate and then uh, like in the other car you got sam michael and chloe which i think you expect just like sam and michael that chloe is going to be more emotional or needs to be taken care of, you know, something like that. And they very quickly show you that, like, that's not the case and that she's not going to operate in the way that you expect, right? Because I think, you know, Sam's character asks her if she's okay, if she's doing all right, and she she says that she's disappointed because she wanted to be up in the limo. Not disappointed because her boyfriend died, or at least she doesn't say that. Yeah, it's a very awkward moment, and I really think it kind of puts Chloe in this weird spot in the audience's mind, at least it did for me, because I didn't really know, I didn't like the joke, because I felt like it was too crude for the moment, but also then you kind of figure out her character, as like we've already discussed today, as being Mm -hmm. this, like, of a different generation, she's not like the rest of this friend group, and her reactions, and the way that she responds to, like, her boyfriend's death doesn't have to be rationalized and i think that's the general point by the end of the film but at this beginning scene yeah. like this initial scene with her in the car is pretty off-putting yeah she seems she seems really indifferent yeah and i did like some of the more empowering parts of chloe's character like michael goes to open the car door for her and she kind of just goes automatically to the front passenger seat and opens the door for herself mm-hmm. and gets in and it's like moments like that that not only tell you something about Chloe, but also about Michael and his expectations, because he's also a bit of a, well, he's a real scumbag in this too. Yeah, he's pretty creepy. Like Kevin Klein's character essentially sits him with Chloe because it's like, I, you know, I need someone to take care of her. It was Alex's girlfriend. You would assume she'll be distraught. And Goldblum, like, I think very accurate. I think he plays it very well. You can see as soon as he sees what Chloe looks like, you can see what he's thinking. Yeah. Which is wild that your friend's 
you, you would think that way about your friend's girlfriend, uh, your dead friend's girlfriend. And and two, I think it does lean into you see a little bit more throughout the movie that, like you said, with his more modern musical tastes and I think this this slight undercurrent to Goldblum's character that like he he's more concerned with staying young than the rest of them. Him going for this younger woman, I think, is is directly in line with that. And he's I think it's also in later scenes very well established that he's completely out of out of his depth with Chloe. She is she knows exactly what's going on and she could she doesn't care at all. Yeah, it's so she plays it so nonchalantly that Michael is confused at his own actions. He's he's seemingly so confident in his ability to kind of sweep her off her feet and mm-hmm. it doesn't it never once even leans that direction for him. And it's pretty kind of insufferable to watch him cuz at the beginning in the very opening scene when we have like a lot of the introductions to the characters, you can tell he has a partner at home and then they bring her mm-hmm. up later. And so he's not single. Whether it doesn't appear that he's married or anything, but he's not single, and he's you know hitting on Chloe right after Alex's death. And it's like when you put it all like once again, seems like a charming character in this in the film. When you when you kind of like pull all, all the curtains back, this is a scumbag. His yeah, his arc is what I think. If you showed me, if I'd watched like the first thirty minutes of this movie, and then you asked me like what the bulk of the conflict would be in the movie i would have assumed like he makes some pass at chloe and the rest of them give him a hard time for it they think he's a scumbag and it never really like one once or twice like behringer and klein's characters sort of see that like Goldblum is like getting close with chloe or hitting on her and they both just kind of like laugh and shrug it off they're like oh he's up to his old ways and it doesn't come across as gross to them which i think is still must be some sort of like hippie remnant DNA, but like free love. Yeah. And I mean, there are other aspects of that in this movie too. There's a lot of infidelity. (laughs) There's a lot of like sanctioned infidelity. And also just like, I think in terms of the movie's culture, forgiven infidelity between Behringer and, uh, and Karen's character. Um, where it's just kind of like, well, that's something they just had to do. There's something they had to figure out and get out. Um, so I do think there's, there's a a hippie-ish going on there where, Right now, if I met a, if I had a friend like Goldblum's character, no one would let him get away with any of that stuff. He would either be like quietly cut out of the group, or people would would lose it. Well, the funny thing is, Nick kind of does take action when he's kind of dishing out drugs to all of his friends on the final night there, or the sorry, the mm-hmm. first night, and he gives Michael a quaalude, and Michael yeah. being this like hip trying to impress kind of guy takes the quaalude takes it full. and takes <laughs> yeah. it full and is passed out and can no longer... And this is like, I think it's offered to him amidst when he's like hitting on Chloe, like in front of everybody. So Nick is doing everybody... or Nick is kind of putting him at bay and taking him out of the equation for everybody's sake. Mm-hmm. But I mean, circling back to this car with Michael and Chloe and Sam, I think another thing is that she doesn't recognize Sam as J.T. Lancer, the character he plays on TV, right? right. Like a Magnum P.I. style, like very like Tom Berenger and Tom Selleck, very much of a kind, handsome, mustachioed men, uh, sort of running around Malibu or somewhere in the sun on TV, and she doesn't recognize him. So again, I think it's this other thing telling you like she's of a completely different community and culture, and like Alex would have been the bridge but he's not here anymore. Yeah. So you're just constantly going to be kind of surprised by what's going on with Chloe to the extent that I don't actually know how old she's supposed to be. I think the rest of them are supposed to be like early mid forties. 
she comes across like 25 sometimes yeah. even though i'm sure it's more like early mid 30s yeah so as much as we've come to say that chloe isn't a surrogate for us as audience members she definitely does tell us a lot about alex and what he must have been like mm-hmm. in part in order to kind of yeah. be part of this friend circle and also her boyfriend yeah so well maybe maybe the only one you know the only one who didn't sell out right someone who probably had more of a palpable youth to them exactly right because they they threw all this somewhat indirect and direct storytelling they tell you a lot about alex being a scientific genius but he turned down all these opportunities in college because it's not what he wanted then he did this pro bono work he did work that helped other people he was just jumping around from job to job a very youthful thing a very younger privilege millennial right a very millennial thing yeah uh and uh and i could see how yeah you can sort of build a case for how he would be with someone like chloe however young she's supposed to be it's fair to say she's way younger than the rest of them yes right uh and i guess if that's all we have to say about oh wait no i did want to mention in that car ride too we get a bit of tension teased between michael and sam's past because uh, clearly right, Michael right, right. Michael had written something about Sam as an actor, and it was a published article of some sort that something about his divorce. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It was about his divorce, and it kind of wasn't in Sam's best interest, I don't think. And Michael defends himself by saying he's a journalist, and that how could you possibly be upset about that still? But and we don't dive into the conflict full on, which I really appreciate in this movie. We don't actually dive into like this big argument about what hack, what the article was about or what happened. It's more so we understand that there is like this tension, and Sam has kind of forgiven Michael, but it's clearly still like something he thinks about and remembers. Yeah, they bring it up like one other time, I think, at the the um, I mean the the gathering after the burial. Yeah, he's sort of apologizing for it, and Sam saying it's water under the bridge, yada yada yada. So I I, I agree though. I love that it's not like oh we're bringing it up now. We've got to resolve it now, right? They are these kind of things where yeah, if you've been friends for twenty five years, like someone bring it up as a barb, and maybe you'd say something, and then maybe it'll come up again when tensions are higher. You never know where these things are going to land. Right. Yeah. It doesn't end up being again, just like the way that Michael interacts with Chloe. It does not end up being like a core conflict that the movie hinges around. It's something it's it's almost like a, um you know, a red flag. Right. Or a red herring. Yeah. Yeah. And Michael's character kind of has several of these, whether it's the nightclub interest or whether it's like his mm-hmm. infidelity. Like there's a lot going on with Michael's character that's like scummy, but it's yet it's kind of all swept under the rug throughout the film, which is not something I condone the film for doing but it's interesting and it does keep it light yeah uh my favorite part about this car ride is probably chloe chloe's naivety or her youth that is unable to recognize either michael or sam's actual profession because she doesn't recognize sam as an actor and she based on michael saying he works a lot in limousines assumes that he's a chauffeur Mm -hmm. and this just kind of like the way she undercuts them is really humorous once you figure out that like Michael's kind of a scumbag and like this yeah. is Chloe taking like a like making getting a good dig in on him. Yeah, no, it it is fun and I do like that sort of perspective, right? It undercuts both of those characters and I do also like that it's it's another time where Michael introduces himself as a journalist and then slowly over the course of the movie you you get more info that like he doesn't even think he's a journalist. He just kind of has to call it that. Right. And 
as the movie goes on, he becomes just more open about the fact that he doesn't think that what he's doing is particularly great writing or important either. And I mean, by the end of the movie, he does he gives up on the club too and, and says, I'm going back to my novel, right? Yeah. For whatever, again, for whatever that's actually worth, I think if you did a big chill too in 93, m- many of them would have the same sort of like existential issues going on. They'd just be doing a different thing or with a different person. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I watched this morning on my Criterion Blu-ray release that there is a reunion of sorts when they all met up at TIFF in 2013 to celebrate. Hmm. Uh, the uh, I guess that would be the 30th anniversary, or 40th, yeah. 40th anniversary? 30th. <laughs> and We cut out both our math. Our math isn't good, just cut it out. <laughs> I realized before, mine was definitely, it's 30 options if you have six people, because people can't pair off with themselves. Yeah, six times five, Tim. Well. <laughs> um, but I guess, like, we're already pushing our time limit, but I did want to mention quickly, the Richard and Karen car is mm-hmm. something, is just the car you want to get the hell out of as soon as you're, like, left in in the car with these two people. And it's it's so stuffy and awful to be in that car because mm. Richard sucks. <laughs> they really lay it on thick. Honestly, they do. I think I'm after my second watch. I was like, we're being unfair to Richard here. Okay, like I I I like that the content of his conversation is something very familiar. The idea where it's like nothing like you described. Not at all. Not one of those people looks like I thought they would. I can't believe these are the same people you've been talking about all these years. Really. <laughs> But they really, honestly, I feel like it's maybe one of the more inconsistent parts of the direction is they're like, at this point, they're like, we just want Richard to be unlikable. And then I'm not really sure why, because I, I think it's way more in line with the movie's tone to have it be that like Karen could have a stable but boring marriage with Richard and, and wants to consider a different option instead of like Richard's just... Uh, like uh, like a jerk, right? Nobody said it was going to be fun. At least nobody said it to me. I think it's definitely a baby boomer commentary. It's definitely meant to be read mm. as some cynicism from a from that older generation that was misled and told that of yeah. all like had all these tales of grandeur in their future and you know we're all supposed to be in the perfect relationships and Karen Karen's character. Which Lawrence Kasdan in the interview I saw this morning called the mo- the hardest role to play in the film. Um, mm. per- one reason being no one wanted to play her character. <laughs> all they all wanted they all wanted Mary Kay Place's <laughs> role as Meg, oh, okay. which is kind of yeah. funny. Yeah. He, Kevin Klein even jokes that he wanted that role in the interview, which is one of the funniest <laughs> parts of the whole thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I will say like I, I'm Richard. Yeah, they really set the tone I think for their relationship in this like i don't think karen says anything you just have the look on her face as he's talking about her friends and then i mean all the same though i really like like richard has one of my favorite scenes in the movie where he's up he's up with insomnia eating a sandwich and he talks to uh nick and sam about kids and how they change your priorities and what alex might have thought of that i think he's actually one of, one of the more powerful scenes i really like don galloway's performance yeah he is meant to be a contrast to the rest of the characters i think and mm-hmm. yes it's laid on pretty thick that he is such like such a boring husband to have mm-hmm. uh, especially <laughs> if you were one of these revolutionaries from the 60s uh but 
it's a little on the nose, but I do think that his contrast is really important. His, mm-hmm. Almost everything that he says at the funeral is something that like you would kind of expect someone who's not part of the group to say in the yeah. spur of the moment, like, oh, like I love your TV show. We watch it every week. And you just see Karen kind of like roll her eyes because that's like obviously yeah. not true. But it's like mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make his character fun or enjoyable, but it does ground him a little bit in reality. Um, some parts of him yeah. are pretty fake and put on, and I think that it does contrast the genuineness of the rest of the core group, but he mm. is still based in reality and the like yeah i think he's a very rational character even though he just kind of sucks yeah i mean his two other his two other scenes right are like when nick is getting his big bag of drugs out from underneath his convertible I love that and he's talking that. about how how advertising is stable and maybe not a ton of fun but it it pays the bills and allows him to support a family and his other his other thing is his like little mini monologue about how kids change your priorities and all these things where he is maybe mature enough and honestly like strong enough to sacrifice his most personal dreams, his most direct goals in terms of, well, it's not the perfect job, but like it allows me to support my family and my family is the most important thing to me. My kids changed the way I thought about my life. And you can see that that's not, not, uh, not even entirely the case for Kevin Klein and gun close who are maybe the most stable characters, but he's still risking, you know, criminal action and fines from the sec and he's got two kids that i mean we never see in the movie except maybe in that party in the the opening scene too yeah um and and right i mean yeah in the bathtub it is worth noting that they have the infidelity as part of their relationships past as well yeah glenn close's characters actually slept with the the departed alex uh Mm -hmm. prior like years prior to his death and it's something that the friend group kind of like all was aware of and has forgiven and has moved on from since including kevin klein's mm-hmm. herald but it's still kind of like a strike on their relationship in many ways yeah whereas like richard seems to just have this like understanding like i have given up all my dreams like which none of the other characters seemingly have in order to mm-hmm. like live as an adult and just exist uh and i think the characters kind of come like that. That's like a huge part of what they're all debating throughout the film, whether they are doing it outwardly or not. This is something that they're all fighting against that none of them want to conform yet. All are Mm. understanding that life would be easier if we just all conformed and for, and gave up on our ideas that were once seen as revolutionary. Even Karen by the end of the film has that has to kind of have that moment with Sam. Yeah. I'd say, yeah, like maybe, one of the more driving aspects of this entire movie uh, comes in the scene prior to this. It's the um, not Kevin Klein's eulogy, but the the pastor's sermon, which is largely like um, boilerplate, right? Like it's a, pretty derivative. Uh, Meg is, yeah, Meg is like quoting it as he's as he's giving it. But I do love that like they really focus in on him for the question: Where did Alex's hope go? Um, where where can we go for hope? And I do think that's one of the main arcs of this movie is each of these people gaining hope in something, whether or not it's this next decision they're making or how they feel about themselves or what they need to be happy. Right. And they all, they're all sort of seeking some hope I'd say. (laughs) And gathering with a bunch of friends who once inspired you has seemingly reinvigorated a lot of this 
by the films that yeah. even though there's not like mm-hmm. even though there's not direct conclusions by the film's end yeah you do get the sense that this has reinvigorated a lot of their sense of passion mm-hmm. and that's comforting as you kind of exit the film yeah i mean and that's the thing right like it's not a group of friends who have to come together to solve a mystery or overcome like a disaster on a hiking trip or a camping trip like there is no core plot to this there is it's just the big chill which it's it makes you think that nothing's going to happen, but so much happens while they're just hanging out. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, with that, maybe we'll uh, jump over to shout outs. Okay. What do you got, Tay? So my shout out this week, is I'm going to keep it nice and simple. It, we already kind of talked about it, but uh, Sam, who's played by Tom Berenger, is a TV actor within the Big Chills universe. So the meta elements of his character, JT Lancer, were very funny to me. I like how the friend group kind of all makes fun of him and pokes fun at the like the depiction of him on screen, which is like this, yeah. you know, he's got like a shirt all open or off, and he's like this big hairy-chested mm-hmm. guy, super macho. And then in real life, he like actually contrasts it in a realistic way. He's like very humble. He's embarrassed by his role on TV, but yet he's like... He's kind of awkward. Yeah, and he's awkward. Like he... he um, yeah. He kind of embodies like a, a, what a real actor is like off screen, and I thought that was like really refreshing for a movie like this with the level of meta attached to the JT Lancer's character. So um, I really like that. I like the scene at the funeral, and really after just immediately after the scene we discussed today, um, a kid asks him for his autograph. And well, can I have your autograph, whoever you are? You think it's time we should be thinking about Alex? Give you a buck. Okay, you're on. <laughs> you're on. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great little moment. And it really, I don't know, puts a smile on your face right after kind of like the funeral procession happens. And I just love the way that Sam is played by Tom Berenger. Not an actor who I'm particularly fond of throughout his career, but he's done some really good performances and everything. This is just kind of a standout, subtle performance and role for him that I, I really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great shout out. Mine, uh, I'm gonna go with the bat scene. I really enjoyed. Um, I think there are a lot of funny moments. I think um, like it's it's a very actually. I think you were right when you said that the editing is not too showy in this, but it has a it the sequences launched off of a very intentionally misleading edit where um, Meg is with Nick upstairs and he says and she's trying to sleep with him and he he says. Did I ever tell you what happened to me in Vietnam? And it's suggested that something happened in Vietnam that has resulted in in some form of impotence. Um, And but it hard cuts to downstairs and Meg screaming and you think she's screaming in reaction to whatever he told her about Vietnam, whatever injury he sustained. And then you find out that like a bat had gotten into the attic uh, so Kevin Klein and Tom Berenger and William Hurt go upstairs to take care of the bats. On the way up, Kevin Klein like grabs Glenn Close and kisses her. He's very silly. It's very charming. He's like, I'll be right and back. And then they go up and like, <laughs> yeah, he's so funny. And they, they go up and they're all trying to hit this thing. And then they think they can just let it out. And they open up the skylight and immediately two more bats fly in. And William Hurt's like, <laughs> Okay, now we got a fair fight. It's a funny sequence that means almost nothing. I don't really know how they worked with the bats in there. I feel bad because I don't think the bats probably made it out of that shoot. 
Um, but uh, I, I like that. I like. I think it's a fun scene. Yeah, Kasdan refuses to comment on that. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I did want to actually just mention this one other funny note. Um, if you have, like, we will put a link to it in the show notes, but it's a really worthwhile read. Uh, GQ magazine did a story on Jeff Goldblum several, a couple of years ago, and the whole article is basically made up of people who's worked with him and their quotes about working with him and what he's like. And it's all this fantastic context about Jeff Goldblum. When they were shooting this movie, he and Kevin Klein rented a place in Beaufort, South Carolina, where they were staying for the shoot. And I guess the, by the end of the shoot, the, most of the cast would go there almost every night to dance, party, smoke drugs. And it became known as the G-Spot because it was Goldblum's spot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he yeah. was credited as kind of bringing everybody together and kind of making the connections on screen exist a lot more in reality that mm-hmm. and it kind of really helped flush it out according to a lot of the cast so uh just a really funny note about this film uh and we'll like i said we'll put a link yeah. to that story in the show notes it's a pretty funny read and then i mean yeah uh next episode's movie we don't have it figured out quite yet because i haven't posted the uh, audience vote yet so by the time this drops we will have either just done the vote or we'll do it uh, shortly, but as always, just keep in mind every single month we're going to sort of pick a theme amongst ourselves here. We're going to choose one movie that we want to do in that theme, then we'll have you vote on the other movie that fits that theme, and that'll be on Instagram. Keep an eye, make sure you follow us there, and you'll be able to uh, help us decide what movie we're going to talk about next. And then, I mean, for our recommendations this week, I'm not sure what you have, Tay, but one thing that I wanted to recommend just based off of our last Instagram roundup every Sunday we sort of ask our followers what they watch that week but in honor of the episode that we dropped last week where we reviewed 2021 films I wanted to do a roundup of the entire year so people talked about what movies they watched this year whether they were from 2021 or not uh, that really stuck with them and we had a lot of great things come back up a couple different William Hurt movies in fact um and a couple of them are for, were definitely from people who are in a film club that Taylor and I are a part of, which is a local group of friends. It's been a great pandemic activity to put everyone in a lineup. Everyone picks a movie. You meet on a weekly basis or so over Zoom and sort of talk about what you thought about it. Opens up your horizons, gets you to watch movies you maybe never would have watched otherwise. And you get a lot of different uh, opinions on what people think about them. So I just recommend as we we're entering here, you know, a third or fourth or fifth lockdown depending on how you're keeping score starting a zoom film club uh, is a good way to to kill some time and learn about some some different cinema and and what your friends think about it yeah it's been a really great experience doing this with a a group of our friends so uh, highly recommend that as well Um, my recommendation for the week it's rare that i have a movie that relates as well to the movie we discuss but i think if you're looking for a Mm -hmm. companion piece to the big chill this is one that you may not have heard of it is called Le Decline de l'Empire Américain, or The Decline of the American Empire. Uh, it's a 1986 film by the Canadian Quebecois filmmaker Denis Arcan, uh, who is one of Canada's definite best directors. Uh, he made a movie called Jesus de Montreal uh, a few years after this one, I believe, which is fantastic. Um, but this movie is about a group of intellectuals kind of reuniting uh, over a dinner party and the discussion revolves around everything from history to politics to sex to adultery 
prostitution. You know, it's a lot of taboo subject matter on the table for a group of intellectuals, and it's quite well directed and really well acted by this ensemble group of Quebecois actors. So highly recommend it. It's not difficult to find. I will link in the show notes where you can find it. Um, and yeah, hope you can check this one out, especially if you like The Big Chill. It's very funny uh, and also pretty like snappy and real. Apologies in advance to all the Quebecois people who are going to criticize my um, pronunciation of the title, but uh, it's definitely a great film. And uh, if you like The Big Chill, check it out. Yeah, we appreciate our French-speaking uh, listeners uh, sticking around. It's not the first time or the last time we're going to butcher your language because uh, we're going to keep talking about Denny Villeneuve for sure. Yeah, when's our next Denny um, episode? I don't know. we got to figure that out. I don't know if that's going to be 20 or not. Um, we'll have Denny by 20, I'd say. More Denny by 20. Yeah. Uh, but with that, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you listen to us on... Uh, Apple on iTunes, please uh, give us a star rating and a review. It really helps get us out there. And as always, you can follow us at SSC pod on Instagram, and you can shoot us an email at single serving cinema at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts or any questions or something that you would have picked about a movie uh, that we talk about or a different thought you'd had. Once we pile up enough of these responses, we'll do a mailbag episode or we'll, we'll add in a section to our episodes and, and sort of review what people are telling us. So we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Please review and uh, review as well. And with that, that's another one in the bag. Um, uh, as always, as this movie will tell you, um, you can't always get what you want. You might get what you need. Maybe. That won't be necessary. You see, Sarah, Harold, we took a secret vote. We're not leaving. We're never leaving. 